0: Last summer, at a French-sounding place called Notre Dame, but in Indiana in the United States, I gave a chapter of Reflections on Pornography. And my point there was to uh, to show its relation with imagination in general, its vital importance for differentiating imagery and therefore differentiating instinctual behavior. When the images change, then the behavior changes. That is pornography's psychological, artistic, and social importance. And my second point, then, was to warn that the freedom of erotic imagination has to be protected. Otherwise, we shall be subjected to the worst sort of Orwellian mind control. Some of this mind control is already being built into our Western legal system, for instance in Canada, where a law written in part by Catherine McKinnon, that's the wife or, well I think she's the wife, of Jeffrey Masson, who's well known to some of you, prohibits pornography that is harmful to women, even if the prohibition infringes upon freedom of expression. In other words, the freedom of expression takes second place to the supposed damages that pornography does. It justifies censorship. Now even if women give consent in the pornographic descriptions or depictions, it's still outlawed. In the United States, the attack has taken a very different route A law before the United States Congress that was watered down would make the purveyors and producers and writers of pornography legally liable for any acts that can be traced back to pornographic material. What does that mean? If I commit a sex crime and show or can show that it was inspired by what I saw on a porn film, I pass the responsibility back to the film. Not the doer of the deed is responsible, but the producer, the writer, or the filmmaker is responsible and can be legally sued and has committed a crime. The maker of the image. Now you hear behind that, you hear behind that the fear of the image, the, the recognition of the power of the image, but presented through this legal... Uh, distortion it's a vicious backhand way of saying images really are very powerful an idea that the church recognized in the middle ages and controlled images so that all the images that you see whether in Notre Dame or Chartres or wherever all those images uh, were uh, those images were allowed even if the individual sculptor could do them in his own way they had to be controlled I warned last summer that the attack on pornography is aimed at the exculpation of the imagination at its instinctual roots. And it is a continuation, the attack on pornography is a continuation of the attack on the pagan gods that has occupied Western Christianity for 2,000 years. Still occupying it. Today I would say, and I'll even say further, it is an attack on the body of Aphrodite one more violation of the divinity who has suffered repression for many, many long Christian centuries as uh, Jeannette Paris brought out, as J. Livernoy brought out, and uh, who we are honoring, Aphrodite, here in Avignon. And it's fortunate that it is Avignon, for this city does not, please, not belong to the popes. It belongs to her, to Aphrodite. The popes came here as if to a mission station to subdue the natives, for the name of Avignon had become synonymous with debauchery since the days of the papacy even earlier. Petrarch mentioned it as being, quote from Petrarch, the sewer in which all of the filth on earth has come to congregate. And medieval chroniclers spoke of it as, quote, the cesspool of every vice and infamy. Is it any wonder that this city happened to be the birthplace of the family of the Marquis de Sade? This aspect of Avignon's reputation spread abroad, and great cities of Europe, like Rome and Barcelona, baptized their red-light districts with the name Avignon. So widespread was this connotation that in Italy, the expression andare avognesi was a slang expression suggesting a visit to a bordel. This is Pink Madness City. And lest we forget, says France Borel, the image of a brothel gave birth to that painting Demoiselle d'Avignon that masterpiece painting of Picasso's which starts cubism in a big, nude, pink, crazy way. Its original title was not Demoiselle d'Avignon, but its original title was Le Bordel d'Avignon. Years later, in 1933, Picasso explained to Kahnweiler, his dealer, quote, Picasso talking now, You know, of course, that it was called Le Bordel d'Avignon in the beginning, but do you know why? Avignon, for me, was a name I had always known, a name connected to my life. I used to live a few steps away from the Cahiers d'Avignon. It was there that I bought my paper, my watercolors. Then, as you also know, Max, Jacob's grandmother, was from Avignon. We joked a lot about this painting. One of the women, this is the five women that you see in Demoiselle d'Avignon, one of the women was Max's grandmother, another Fernande, another Marie-Laurencin, all in a whorehouse in Avignon. Kahnweiler adds that Max Jacob told Picasso about a special bordello in Avignon, a fabulous place full of women, tapestries, flowers, and fruit, a high sanctuary of carnal pleasures in the heart of which still life and very real life were found side by side. So with that little tribute to Avignon, let's begin. Andiamo agli Avoniesi. If you had been put in a closet for hundreds of years by priests, philosophers, and prudish women who love their religion more than their bodies, what would you do to let mortals know that you are still alive and alive in your sensuous style of life? And if you were banned from actual life, except for occasional opportunities in certain circles dedicated to you, or at specific times or occupations, finding no frame in which to fit in the literal realities of medieval piety, reformational capitalism, industrial revolution, colonial administration, scientific progressivism as it transformed into therapeutic salvationism, If there simply was no place for you in the big, literal world, what avenue would be left except fantasy? Remember, her terrain is simply, said, the evocation of desire, the provocation of attraction, the invocation to pleasure. But long hair is not allowed on the production line, gets caught in the cogs. Botticelli's lovely lady would have to wear a white hygienic cap. Skin should be covered to, be, to protect from cancer, toes shod, nails clipped, musky odors of the warm bathed flesh, band with astringent deodorants that last all day into the sweet hours sank a set. One of the main ways they advertise deodorants in America is to say they last into the evening. To hike with Artemis is okay. To bring a present home from work to Hera is okay. To plan strategy over competitors all day long with Athene is okay. To jog with Hercules for muscle tone and circulation, and to defeat Geras, old age, is okay. So today I'm trying to be open to what she, I hope it was she, Aphrodite said to me, a retired psychoanalyst man who saw hundreds and hundreds of dreams and fantasies and obsessional ideas that we call pornographic in the psyches of what are called patients? those humans suffering from the absence of Aphrodite in their actual lives. So to go on with her appeal, I am not happy, she said, and it is my nature to be happy. I need to be happy. No, I am not happy about being a being allowed only this one access, the access of fantasy. So I am a bit spiteful, revengeful. After all, my sister or half-sister was named Nemesis. And Nemesis or Retribution and I are linked very closely. For instance, usually where I come into a human's fate, Nemesis comes too. Bringing some sort of retributive justice. For instance, Paris rightly preferred me to Athene and Hera, and out of that came terrible, marvelous retribution the Trojan War and Homer. Well, I want to tell you more about my boy Priapus. Actually, not a boy now, but a rather heavy set balding, ruddy, bearded, full-grown man. Though for me, he will always be my boy. (laughs) According to some tales, Priapus was a brother of Hermaphroditus. Both were said to be offspring of Hermes and Aphrodite. But others say Priapus was sired by Dionysos, Some say even by Zeus. Finding the father is never easy, even among the gods. And whom am I to tell, even if I knew, says Aphrodite? Whoever the lucky father was who had the pleasure of Aphrodite's bed and body, Priapus is definitely her son. And Aphrodite is always there, as a mother is always there, in her son. Whenever, wherever Priapus raises his balding head, Aphrodite is also there. This suggests, vulgar as it may seem to those who cling to prissy, pretty sex, every hard-on is mothered by Aphrodite and is somehow, somehow carrying out her intentions, her fantasies, as the mother instigates and inspires the activities of her sons. Of course, as the stories go, Aphrodite was horrified by the gross genitals of her baby boy. She could not bear the sight of him. She saw them as a deformity. So hung up she was on her notions of beauty. Interesting, the intolerance of aphroditic criteria of beauty. The intolerance of aphroditic criteria of beauty. I think that's important. It's, it's as if she took possession of the idea of beauty and there could be no other kind. There is a lesson here for all you worshippers of the shapely, the perfect, the lovely, the smooth and pleasing ideas of beauty. But to go on, she bore him, but she could not bear him. The sight of him was too much, so she exposed him on a mountainside. You know the old trick. A shepherd found him... (coughs) that marvelous figure, the shepherd, like the one who found Oedipus, the one in Shakespeare's Winter's Tale who saved Perdita. And all of us go on with this mytheme in therapy, our abandonment from beauty, our rejection by the mother, our genital peculiarity or inferiority or grandiosity, saved by the greatest of all shepherds, Jesus Christ, and you know that J.C. with the shepherd's crook, the bishop, the savior, one of his fundamental images is the savior with the, shepher- the shepherd, he's the shepherd, the good shepherd. But this shepherd, and David Miller has done a great job on this figure in one of his early papers, this shepherd is able to save Priapus, not because he is a compassionate redeemer but because he is himself perverse, (laughs) crooked as his crook. The shepherd's god is usually Pan, the goat god, the inventor of masturbation. He is peculiarly twisted himself, and he lives his life liminally at the edge of civilization, half wild, and is also the shepherd a source of one of the main streams of our poetry, bucolic poetry, and sexual poetry—chasing maidens all the time, shepherds—and one of the main streams of our humor. Like what is virgin wool? It comes from sheep that can run faster than the shepherd. I couldn't resist that, but I have another one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's another one. The jokes the Australians tell about the New Zealanders. You know New Zealand is where they have more sheep than people. The, New Ze- the Australians say the New Zealanders raised the sheep, but it took the Australians to teach them that they had other uses and were good for meat and wool. but that's we're we're almost finished with the shepherd now (laughs) but back to Priapus (laughs) exposure exposure exposed on the mountainside his whole life can be condensed into that acorn of exposure forever after Priapus is the exposing one the one who exposes his member in statuettes, cult objects, souvenirs, paintings, charms. He exposes himself, yet is always undercover, under a cloak, a kind of skirt, a toga raised. In the modern jokes, it's a raincoat. He exhibits his erection. And that garden where Pryopolis is to be found As he is a god of gardeners, by the way. But come on now. That's again the scholarly way of doing it. Don't be conned. The garden is one of the oldest euphemisms for the genital region of women. A direct term for it in Greek, kepos, pudenda muliebra, just as we use the word bush. And endless words of fruits and flowers like fig and plum and peach and cherry and melon and, of course, rose. So that he, Priapus, the gardener, is he who takes care of the garden and his life is in the garden. Scholarship has had to cover all this up with fertility. They're always trying to cover the member. You see the the because Priapos is covered in order to be revealed. As Lopez Pedraza said years ago, and did in his, in his uh, chapter on Priapos, try to reveal Priapus's true nature. In other words, when you begin to work scholarly with Priapos, you're caught by the same archetype, and you try to uncover the, the naked truth, as I'm trying to reveal his nature. So with this we come to what's clinically called exhibitionism. Could it be Priapus who is displaying himself in this urge? Is this urge saying, look at my parts that Aphrodite rejected. I need to be seen, appreciated, taken in from abandonment, saved from this cursed orphaned condition. I'm the son of Aphrodite too. I'm the one who was exposed by her, and so I must return by the same route, exposure of the very part that caused my exposure. Is this what exhibitionists try to say to everyone they can show their genitals to? Look at me. I mean you no harm, and you know that clinically exhibitionists are not violent. Not rapists, but usually mild and timorous men. Is he not saying, receive me, see, I am beautiful, despite what my mother says? About that curse at birth, and now we're getting into something good, like this now, what's coming. There is more to say. The gross genitalia that so horrified Aphrodite's sensitive good taste, that penis that surpassed the standard benchmarks for the standing male member, do you know the full story of his birth? Well it's high time you did, because Aphrodite, about to give birth, retired to a town on the Hellespont called Lampsacos. <clears throat> a place later that considered Priapus its founding hero, God. For there he was born, and later his cult was celebrated. And coins bearing his image were cast, and Priapian rituals performed. Heroic Alexander wanted to destroy the town for its pornographic excesses. Now, Hera... Yes, Hera, was enraged at the trifling of Zeus, or of Dionysus, Zeus' son by Hera's despised rival, Semele. So either Dionysus or Zeus was supposedly the father of Priapus, in Hera's mind. And all that, those were enemies of Hera, and she did not forgive In Hera's mind, this child to be born was an insult to her because it was directly or indirectly from Zeus. And she, Hera, queen of heaven, who was not chosen by Paris, and so on and so forth, Hera, known for her spite, and it doesn't matter her reason about Zeus, the child to be born would be a living testimony of philandering, the very progeny of philandering which she was, in her ordained way, to be the opponent of. So she did her own cheating and deception by proffering aid to Aphrodite during her lying in and birth pangs. So Aphrodite was going through the process of birth, she was suffering, she was in pain. Hera said, I will come and help you. She touched Aphrodite's belly with her finger causing the child's unshapeliness. So you must see the long finger of Hera in the gross genitalia of Priapus. She is the source of what Aphrodite sees as deformity. It is the Hera archetype, if you will, that causes us to see Priapus as we do. Let me say that again. It is the Hera archetype, if you will, that causes us, to see Priapus as deformed and distorted as we do. Now, the enormity of Priapus has many gods in it, lots of gods. It can't be read simply. As López Pedraza says, each Priopian excitation has in it the power of our Aphrodite, of Dionysus, of Hades, of Zeus, maybe Hermes, and so on. But in all of this, let us never forget the finger of Hera. This is what a polytheistic psychology teaches about any event. There is a complex imagination released, rather than a simple explanation. We get a story rather than a reduction. And each mythical story involves another story. As the German Romantic said, Never, never does one god appear alone. Now, I stress Hera here because the other sons of Aphrodite and favorites of hers, Aeneas and Hermes and Anchises and Paris, Hermaphroditus, Adonis, Eros, Dionysos, all these figures around her were certainly not malformed Priapus was the only one, the only one touched by Hera. Only the one touched by Hera. One touch of Hera, and the preoptic becomes deformed, vulgar, gross. We turn from it. The Priopic moment and the pornography that it brings about, or shows it via John Holmes, and we regard it as excess and most unbeautiful, We turn from it. Hera would like only one kind of erection, that which serves the mating instinct, the mating kind. Jay pointed this out yesterday in regard to Ursula. The coupling husbandly kind suits Hera. Hera is then the authoress of the banning of hardcore porn, the direct kind that shows erections and invites preopic Erections that shows erections and invites preopic erections. She would exclude the excessive sexual imagination to keep it within the bounds of conjugal relationship. It is she who makes it ugly, not that it in itself is ugly and crude. She causes it to be placed, marginalized on the mountainside to the red-light district, to the combat zone. Now I'm not here to uh, blame Hera or to invite her enmity. I have enough troubles in her domain. In fact, dear lady, I regard myself as one of your devotees, having done obeisance in your sacred places in Sicily and Paestum, and have made notes for a little book once on your in your favor and on your virtues for our culture. Nonetheless, Hera, allow me this analytical moment of penetration into your preserve. <laughs> the localization of Priapian sexuality, the coarse, the rude, the red, in a red-light district, the banning of the sex shop from the nice married neighborhoods, is a geographical literalization of a mythical domain. Seduction, pornography, perverse, and you know perverse means turned or twisted, and that one of the marks of the preopic is that his genitals were twisted and turned to the rear, that is, perverse, turned back in around. All of this is a metaphor, perhaps as well as a physical sign, does not belong, this kind of perversion, does not belong at home where the twists of imagination are supposed to be domesticated. That's one whole point of the Zeus Hera story domestication. And St. Paul, too, said it is better to marry than to burn. Marriage is not for burning, it is for cooling off the pink madness. Hera's, <laughs> Hera's domestication is supposed to calm it all down so that after a while people say, where did it all go? To make this clearer, Hera, in one of her tales, told yesterday so well by Jeanette Paris had to get Zeus away from his obsession with the Trojan War, get him off his job, his watcher's perch above the battlefield, out of his CEO's office, if you will. So Hera asks Aphrodite for help to make her seductive. And Aphrodite lends her some stuff, a girdle, to to make her more charming. Only sexual attraction will get to Zeus. I see, the, see the, the role of sexual fantasy. That's the only thing that will get to him. Pull him out of the office. And he can't resist anything in girdles. And if you notice that the sexual imagination is stronger than anything else, stronger than war and battle, strategy, winning and losing, and the joys of the superior mind. The great trick of the gods to get at the superior mind is seduction. That's the pink madness. Only a crazy attraction can get to the Olympian above-it-all posture that affects our Western culture. Again, only a crazy attraction can get to the Olympian above-it-all posture that affects or afflicts our Western culture. Mm-hmm. Yes. Only pink madness can get to the Olympian above it all attitude that aff- that afflicts our Western culture. It takes seduction the temptation of the pink to bring it down. And again and again in men's dreams, the only way through to reach the isolate Olympian mind is via seduction of pink figures, erotic dreams. I mean, this is also Bizet's Carmen in a way, isn't it? But, Hera did not want to do any of this in the open, the seduction of Zeus, so we're back again to our theme of concealment and exposure, those preopic themes that I began with. For Hera wants to keep sexual acts concealed and private. Hera does not say, let's just do it right here and now. It's got to be her place. She says, I could not, not I, return to the house after rising from a bed of love in the open. It would not be seemly. That's Dionysian, that's animal. And Zeus easily takes on animal forms for his seductions to do it in the open. Hera must make love inside the thalamos, the bridal chamber, the domestic space inside the house, civilized, In the story, there's a a golden cloud placed around them, and a kind of romantic fantasy makes it possible. But this is not Priopic. Priopic belongs outside. Not in the wild hills of Dionysian ecstasy or the rocky, wild places of Pan's chases. Priopus is in the garden and the orchard. The cultivated regions around the house but not in it. For once when he does try to come in the house to Hestia, the salty virgin lady by the hearth, an ass brays, saying, not here in this randy foolishness, not here, and wakes her from nodding by the fire, and Preopolis is chased out. You don't belong in the house. This uh, ass is very important, this donkey, this burro, this that's his animal, as the goat is Pans, as the owl was Athene's and the dove Aphrodite's. So, of course, hardcore pre pornography is stupid, coarse, blunt, clumsy, single-minded, and rather sad. The ass degrades and suffers degradation as a donkey's brain, stubbornly repetitious, can't almost can't stop, like any hardcore cheap porn film, stubbornly repetitious. And the charges against pornography, that it is stupid, and that watching it is foolish, and that it is dirty, uh, low-class, unromantic, are charges leveled at the ass. Toulouse-Lautrec understood this. He brought down the high Aphrodite to his deformed level. And there's a little passage where he says, Toulouse-Lautrec, he asked several women half undressed in colorful shifts and dressing gowns to dance to a player piano, holding each other by the waist. He had them move forward and back so that they would face him, and he went into raptures over attitudes of these coarse whores that reminded him of Botticelli's Primavera and the frescoes of Benozzo Gozzoli. You see, with Toulouse-Lautrec, you get the capacity to make the ass part of the whole, the donkey, the burro part of the whole, pornographic into images. He doesn't escape into Botticelli ideas of beauty. And the ass is, brings down the high aphrodite to the asinine, which is essential to artistic and, and uh, the religious imagination. Saint Francis and his ass, Sancho Panza. So, our definition of pornography are Hera's, even if stated by the US Supreme Court. If what is displayed violates community standards has no redeeming social, scientific, artistic value, that's the way they describe pornography. Then arousal is obscene. It must serve the community. And this is Hera's finger. And I'm fingering you, Hera, by which I mean informing on you, not something vulgar. So when Sally Tisdale writes a splendid piece in Harper's Magazine about her desire, a woman's desire to visit porn shops and buy porn videos and look at them, and writes of her shame, and overcomes it to free her curiosity. This shame is not brought on because porn viewing is a male activity exclusively. It is also that porn does not belong inside the consciousness of normal community and domesticity and household as defined by Hestia and Hera. The resistance Sally Tisdale, a very famous article in favor of women's pornography and women looking at porn, the resistance she overcomes is not patriarchal conditioning. It is the archetypal resistance of these goddesses. Is this why usual wives don't want to watch porn at home with their usual husbands, the sex of two couch potatoes in front of their screen? (laughs) When Sally Tisdale visits the shop, she is one of the women who leaves the house for the wild hills of Dionysian mysteries, women's mysteries, those exclusive women's festivals of which Kareini writes, exclusive women's festivals to which men were not admitted. The participants said the most shocking things to one another. At the feast of the Haloya, They were not only obscene mockeries, but some very indecent behavior. The married women were led on by means of ritual play to things forbidden in marriage. So I've taken this time to tell the story of the origins of Priapus and of Hera's finger on Aphrodite's belly, of his exposure, his marginalization in order to realize that a curse has been put on Priapus and therefore on all vigorously erected image consciousness, that aroused imagination which pornography seeks to achieve. It is blamed for male violence, the beating of wives, sexual excesses, molestation of children, rapes. All this argumentation is part of the curse put on the Priopic by Hera and by her domain of the domestic, the communal, the societal, over this child of Aphrodite, Priapus. I have a little bit more. If we all have patience still, yes? You want to stretch? (laughs) The most recent appearance, by the way, of Priapus in public life was at the exposure of Clarence Thomas' a stocky, middle-aged, balding, swarthy, if not ruddy, asinine man before the Judiciary Committee of the U.S. Senate. There, he was uncovered on TV, indecent exposure, almost physical, when his penis was referred to as Long John Silver, and there was mention of a Suggestive, seductive cubic hair in these hearings before the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. May I remind you that one of the many plants used to honor Priapus with garlands and leaves and wreaths and flowers and ferns was the adiantum. In Roman times, this plant was known as Capillus veneris or maiden hair or Our Lady's hair, and, quote, the hair implied in these names was that of the pubis. Now, if Eros, Hermaphroditus, and Priapus are all her sons, they're brothers, then, in a sort of halfway. They're all in the family of Venus. Different, but Related. So sexual freakishness, Lopez's term for hermaphroditus, including all the transsexual surgery, cross-dressing, bisexual lifestyles, drag, and get-up, shows some of the pink madness of Aphrodite, a madness now permeating even the United States Navy and Marine Corps via hermaphroditus. The fear of the freak, called homophobia, Especially when Hermaphroditus is fused with his brothers, that is, with heroic handsome Aeneas, and with Eros, and falling in love, and with the pre fear of an erection in the shower, when they get mixed together, pink you have pink madness inside a light cruiser. That's, of course, a warship there, the light cruiser. We have spent a disproportionate time with Priapus because he is instrumental in most hardcore porn, either as what's depicted or what it's aimed at. If there is a god in the disease, as Jung says, the god is Priapus. And porn is aimed to resurrect his erection. For the idea of divine resurrection must be recaptured from Christian usurpation and placed where it today belongs, the insurrection of the flesh, as St. Augustine called his libidinal desires, the resurrection of the pagan powers, the animal divinities of erections, like the baboon who greets the sun of the Egyptian new day, the ass that brays and the cock that crows at dawn. At the return of the pagan light after Christianism's cloacal cloaking of the ancient imaginative powers of pink pleasure. Can you handle that one? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, Enrique. The sun of the new day, the ass that brays and the cock that crows at dawn, at the return of the pagan light, after Christianism's cloacal cloaking, you can't do that, of the ancient imaginative powers of pink pleasure. Pink madness also invades the, especially the commercial world. As I said, what she calls fantasying, we call advertising. Selling shampoo, braziers, Hawaiian islands, Aegean islands, coffee beans, dove soap. It sells the skin of automobiles and the smooth, hairless bodies attached to Nordic track and Nautilus machines. All these images are varieties of soft-core porn. Do you have that distinction softcore, hardcore porn? <laughs> Romantic, sensuous, fuzzy, arousing. And the god here, or daimon, of the soft-core is less hermaphroditus the freak or priapus the prick than their lovely brother Eros. His inflammatory sexuality or seductive sexuality, his otherworldly attraction, his constant courting of the soul, this eternal winged troubadour, tempting psyche to swoon with pleasure, follow me, Come with me. Fly with me. I will give you voluptuousness. You recall their child, I suppose, that's voluptas, Aphrodite's granddaughter, though I can't imagine she likes to be a granny and never mentions this descendant of hers in that way. Anyway, that child of Psyche and Eros was called Voluptos, as Norhall mentioned earlier. And the definition of that in the staid Oxford English Dictionary is voluptuousness of, pertaining to, derived from, resting in, or characterized by, gratification of the senses, especially in a refined or luxurious manner, marked by indulgence in sensuous pleasures. That's precisely what consumerism offers, voluptas, indulgence in sensuous pleasures. So, Aphrodite, banned from our secular civilization, returns right into its very heart, not only via her son Priapus and his arousing porn, but through the appeal of consumerism, its soft core aura that makes us want desire reach out for the Greek word for reaching out for orexis stretching of the fingers anorexia without appetite stretching of the fingers appetite related to petere to seek to go for it petition seeking begging and to petulance the feeling when you don't get what you beg for Inside that word appetite, the shopping drive of consumerism, is ptero, the wing of a bird. Our stretched hands are birds' wings. Also, as homologues to the the actual structure of the bird's wing, is the human hand. Our reach of desire is the wing of a bird. There's a spirit in our yearning. All I'm saying now, very simply, is that Aphrodite's pink madness runs the world sub-rosa in the disguise of the consumerist economy. Shopping is the number one leisure activity of Americans after TV, which is also shopping. She keeps the whole world in desire and out there shopping lured by the soft sex cell of softcore porn. And it takes all the Puritan power of denial to refuse her. No longer in the straight-laced way of the Methodists. No dancing, no bare legs, no cosmetics. But now, no more catalogs, no more TV. I won't watch, I won't go shopping. Just say no to shopping. Since soft core belongs to Aphrodite and Eros, of course it appeals to Psyche. Psyche, Apuleius says, serves in the temple of Venus. Our psyches are caught in the amor and psyche tale just by letting ourselves be allured. Remember the difference between Aphrodite or Venus and Eros is that Eros is the drive that makes you desire. But Aphrodite is what makes something light up so that you want it. She's the touch of beauty. She's not active. She radiates from within something so that Eros goes for it. I want to defend the soft core, particularly because the preopic proponents of hardcore laugh at it, put it down. They want the real thing, hardcore. They want organ grinding. Crotch shots, hard-ass hard-ons, no romance, no chiaroscuro, no suggestion, no ambiguity, no fuzzy, soft, pink, orange titillations. More the level of the braying ass than the cooing turtle dove. More a joke and a jab than a gasp and a moan. Hardcore may have many gods. Saturn and sadism, as Tom Moore writes, pans, masturbation, and rape, the child and the hero, the virgin and the nymphets. Hardcore may have many gods in it. Saturn and sadism, pans, masturbation, and rape, the child and the hero the Virgin and the Nymphets. But the hardest core of all today is the reverse side of Christian repression, Satanism's child porn. Covering over the preopic privates, covering it over again, we're back to that covering again, is the fear of the spark that André Malraux says that leaps from one person to another via the art object. The possibility that you, as onlooker watching, could be aroused yourself your erotic imagination stirred has led to endless censorship. One of the most famous being that by Pope Paul IV censoring Michelangelo's last judgment in the Sistine Chapel. Flaubert wrote about these fig leaves and veils so acidly and so well that I want to quote this little passage. I'm sorry it's in English. I don't, didn't get the uh, French for this. So I'll read it slowly. Flaubert says, "'He would have given his fortune "'to know the name, the age, the address, "'profession, and face,' of the gentleman who invented for the statues of the Museum of Nantes those fig leaves made of tin that look like devices designed to discourage onanism. Flaubert's talking about the museum in Nantes have been outfitted with these shameful metal drawers that sparkle like pots and pans One can see that this work was long premeditated and that it was executed with loving care. The edges are scalloped and they are affixed with screws, fixed with screws to the members of these poor plaster figures. Now flaking away with pain. <laughs> In these times, says Flaubert, of rampant folly, amid the common stupidity which surrounds us, what a joy it is to find, if only for the sake of diversion, at least one truly outstanding idiocy. <laughs> One gigantic stupidity. See, he's, the ass has come in here, but now it's not in terms of the, the figure. It's the stupidity with which we react in our censorship. Well, uh, the, he goes on for quite a while about that. I think we can read the covering of The Privates with less irony and even more twist than Flaubert. Because Priapus is both covered and exposed, present and absent both. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, is more intriguing. As, for instance, the most important of all cover-ups of genitals in our culture, the naked Jesus of the crucifixion. Those veils and bits of fabric and artfully placed screens of other figures between us and his genitals are not simply to be read as literal censorship of his literal sexuality, that is, to ban sex from the minds of his devotees. These covers serve as a soft core gesture on the part of a very sophisticated church to fascinate the worshipers of this holy object, this all-but-naked God, to bind us to him erotically, passionately, arousedly, just by that very fold of cloth, that branch or limb or leaf or arm, closing off the literal and opening into the suggestive, the implied, the imagination. Jesus on the cross walking with it, descending from it, dead beside it, laid out in his mother's arms, that determining image of our culture's religious consciousness is a soft core exemplar par excellence, preopic in its presence and its absence both. This god of wingless, tormented love All nude, but for what is cloaked. And didn't Jesus ride an ass on Palm Sunday? (laughs) Softcore brings in Eros. Softcore adds a glow to the secularization of sex, the functionalism, the everydayness, with a pink hope, a flash of beauty, a desire for wings. Softcore porn is far more significant than hardcore because it is more a symptom. It both denies and yet offers what the psyche wants. It is, as Freud said of symptoms, a compromise. Softcore invites the soul's longing, but only tantalizes it with expectations and imaginations of fulfillment on a faraway shore with a faraway lover unknown, unseen like a moor in the night in a faraway dream paid for by your MasterCard. <laughs> if we truly understand the nature of this figure, the, the Eros aspect, this brother of Priapus, this style of Aphrodite's pink madness, we would know that he is the God of the far away, the transporting one, one of whose manifestations is in the form of yearning or pothos, longing. Because he had Eros had one form of Himeros, which was immediate present desire, and another form was The desire for the absent, which never goes away and is never fulfilled, and one longs always for more. (coughs) A longing for what is not real, here, hard, now, sure, known, read, but away, soft edged, unknown, rosy, and of imagination. Remember that Eros, in another tale, is parented by, one of his parents is called emptiness or neediness, always wanting something more that isn't here. The light of Eros at dawn and dusk softens the brutal and banal day of facts with the sweet impossibilities of images. And the dominant desire in all softcore porn, the great temptation of softcore romance, is the sacralization of sex, sex turned to mystery, redeemed from the secular by Aphrodite's charis. As one seeks the unknown encounter, the stranger, the eyes across the room the nape of a neck, a leg, the glint on hair fall that catches the breath and releases the pink madness, the yearning for a first time, clasped, breathless bodies in a new place, with a new person, in a new way, absence become presence, pothos become himeros, in sacred space, even if. A room in a motel. Softcore porn is thus not an idealization of sex and, therefore, as Freudians would say, a defense against the real thing. Rather, softcore is its pothos aspect, the romantic, platonic desire, clothed or unclothed in pink to suffuse imagination with an erotic tinge, to give wings a frisson that reminds and calls to more, to farther, to other, to better, a wondrous lifting, not for this world and reminiscent of another, or filling this world with the radiance of another, filling this world with the radiance of another world, which was always the main purpose of Aphrodite and the main significance of her smile. Thank you.